0: You're listening to Traders Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at tradersinsight.news. Keep in mind that any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures
1: at the end of today's episode. Welcome to our show. Let's get started. Welcome to this first edition of Interactive Brokers Radio Podcast. My name is Andrew Wilkinson, and I'm the Director of Trading Education here at Interactive Brokers, which means that I'm responsible for ensuring our clients know how to use our various trading platforms. We're going to look back in this first episode at how Interactive Brokers has grown from a small options market maker into a NASDAQ-listed global broker-dealer with a market capitalization in excess of $30 billion. As a broker-dealer, Interactive Brokers connects its 1.5 million clients to 135 markets electronically in 33 countries using 23 currencies. More than 20 years ago, I was a London trader and watched the revolution from hectic open outcry on traditional trading floors to electronic screen-based dealing. The very first market that interactive brokers made electronically available to its clients back in 1993 was the German government bund market. Now during the 90s, this market was one of the world's most liquid and demand for German debt was raging on account of the transition towards ever lower inflation and the onset of the single European currency. Everyday trading volumes were huge. Over time, Interactive Brokers has built out more products on more electronic markets. And today, the company trades more than most U.S. electronic broker dealers since we cater to active and professional investors. I'm joined here today by my colleague, Steve Sosnick. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Andrew. Steve is Interactive Brokers' chief strategist. Steve, you joined the company before the electronic revolution happened in Europe. Tell us a bit about what a dealing room looked like at that time. Well, first of all, it was before
2: the electronic revolution happened pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, when I joined, most of the people who worked for Timber Hill, which was the firm at that point, uh, were floor traders. I joined in December of 1995. At that point, <clears throat> we were moving from uh, trading index options using sort of um, PC monitors that flashed colors into the pits to um, and transitioning toward what I would call proto iPads almost. They were, they were laptop computers with touch screens, but they were very, very underpowered considering what you could do now. And so, you know, the traders would sometimes go in there with like four or five machines. I don't know how some of these people would, would not have back problems. <laughs> um, and, you know, they would, somebody would walk in the crowd, you know, I- IBM March par calls, what's your market? And, you know, they'd type it in there, you know, or, you know a quarter or a half kind of thing. And done, and then they'd put in the trade, and it would get it would get transmitted electronically up to um, up to headquarters in Greenwich, and we would constantly be adapting our model based on all these inputs. So, Steve, so were you sending a message down? Are we using a phone to communicate with the the, the floor? How was no, it done? No, the it was done electronically. The the guys in the pits before that, they would do the trade and signal it out to. Um, to their clerk who would then put it who would then input it, but it was done electronically. The handhelds um, were communicated electronically. I really wouldn't talk to them. I, even then, we were communicating prices to the traders and getting the trade reports back all electronically. The problem was you couldn't really trade with another trader electronically. There were almost all trading was done um, open outcry. All the pricing information that was available to us, combined with all the position data that was available to us, um, and sending fresh prices, more or less upon request to each trader um, when when they needed to see what was
1: going on in a specific line. So, so tell us what you were doing at a granular level. So, you, th- this this is the options market, right? So, where does an order come from? It it arrives on your desk. What do you do? What What are the elements to to, to your job at that
2: time? At that time, I was hired because we'd started to move in a big way into individual equity markets, going beyond um, the big indices at the time, which was really OEX, the 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 SIBO um, 100 index, the S&P 100, which was trading on the SIBO, was the biggest option that would trade, and there were, and there were um, the, you know the S&P futures, etc. We started to move into individual equities. Needed a person who had an equity trading background as well as a derivative trading background. That person was me. Basically, my job in those days was, first of all, develop protocols for understanding our risks at any given point. Um, you know, are we on side or offside? Are we building up too big of a position in one in in one sense or another? And if so, why? And if so, adjust the prices and start to develop um, regimes for pricing in what I would call the known unknowns, earnings earnings events or, or other corporate news that would come in. Um, and all these required tweaks to the model. Um,
1: and, of course, making sure the model worked. So so how big a business is this back in the mid-90s? We're talking options again. So the company behind this, which was the forerunner of Interactive Brokers, was Timber Hill. Give us some perspective on... Timber Hill, its size in the industry and its importance. Um, we were well known among people on the exchanges, but
2: outside of the options industry, no one knew who we were. Which was the same with many of our other big competitors. You know, no one knew who Susquehanna was or Wolverine or some of these other firms. We probably had a few hundred floor traders at that point. And this is across multiple exchanges. This is in US, the US right? and this is in the US and internationally at this point. We were growing steadily in that
1: in that period because I think what we were doing was a bit ahead of the game. And I think it, when I joined the company in 2007, I remember a couple of statistics thrown at me about Timber Hill's global footprint and its U.S. footprint. I think globally, Timber Hill traded about 13 percent of uh, equity options every day, and around 15 percent across uh, North America.
2: That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah it That's, was a large footprint. Yes, it, it was a very large footprint.
1: You know, and along the way, we did expand. By the time I
2: arrived, there was an office in Hong Kong and there was an office in Zug. And we were trading in most of the major European markets and certainly Hong Kong. Um, I think we I think we were up and running in Australia by the time I arrived. Um, I started Timber Hill, Canada in the
1: late 90s. And, and you know, it's been steady growth. But well, that was a very important aspect of making internet brokers what it is today it has a global presence and I, I, and my understanding is this that that uh, we would roll out to exchanges across the world become an exchange member and that's what's that's the legacy today that, that we're able to make our products and services available to to, to a global client base right um, I, I should give you a more interesting answer than yes but yes <laughs> all right so let, let's let's Looking back at your career, you've you've covered bull market, bear market. You've seen an awful lot. Can you capture for us a, a bit of the drama throughout your career? For example, what, what does the dot com boom and bust look like after after twenty one years? Um,
2: well, it's interesting because at that point we I, I like to draw a lot of parallels then to now because there there are a lot of in the ni- late nineties um, there was a huge democratization of investing. And the public was able to um, disintermediate from using their, you know, calling up a broker to typing into a terminal. You know, we were one at that point. I mean, we were not, we didn't advertise to the way that like Ameritrade or E-Trade did. Um, so in Mindshare, they definitely uh, seemed bigger. But that was a big turning point in terms of getting people involved in the options market exploded. And you knew at this point that there were some crazy stuff going on, right. that the internet was for real, but... You know, many of these stocks were, you know, pretty much phony. Um, I will say, among our best years were 2000 and 2001, um, because volatility exploded, spreads widened. We tended to do well when times were chaotic in terms of annualized returns, two of our best years, probably the two best years that we had. Flash forward to now, we've had this huge democratization of investing yet again, you know, sort of new apps that make it even easier. Um, we, as an industry, we made it free of major brokerage firms. We we beat Schwab by, I think, a day or two to yep. go to free commissions. Um, as an industry, we enabled fractional trading. Um, all these are things that democratized investing. That sounds familiar, right? And in the late 90s, you had the internet um, coming into vogue. And I, I think you didn't have to be a huge futurist to know that there was something meaningful about the internet. but you also realize that a lot of the companies that were out there were, were really kind of dopey. You know, right. pets.com is what everybody brings up. But then there was the, the globe.com, which was a sort of a proto-social network. You know, there were all kinds of crazy. Basically, clicks were the measurement, nothing to do with profitability or, or in, many other, in, in any real sense. Well,
1: profitability didn't exist, did it?
2: Um, no. And, and when we look back, there's really only one company that came of age in that era mm-hmm. that has survived and thrived, and that's Amazon. And, you know, people said, well, what about Apple? What about Microsoft? No, they were they were around beforehand. And the other ones, Facebook, Google, um, some of these other, we could rattle off a whole bunch more, Netflix, et cetera. They're all post-internet bubble. And what I see now is that sounds an
1: awful lot like blockchain right. and cryptos, doesn't it? Right. And people are asking that very same question. You know, yeah. Isn't this just another... Crazy boom that's gonna go bust at some well,
2: point. Well, let me ask sort of ask and answer a question. Would you have this mania in cryptos and NFTs if we had positive real interest rates instead of negative real interest rates? I'm gonna say no. And what kind of brought us to a late 90s to a close was you had this robust economy, um, but the Fed was continually pumping more money in because they were deathly afraid of Y2K, with good reason. Let me let me not say that's a mistake. Um, Y2K came and went more or less uneventfully, which was good. Um, so what did the Fed do? They started to withdraw liquidity. Well, th- it, it wasn't immediate, but you know, sort of March 2000 where we peaked and as the Fed started to remove the Y2K liquidity, the, the unsustainable you know, became unsustainable. And that's kind of what I think now is, which cryptos will be the Amazon, so to speak, and which will be the pets.com my gut tells me is things that are named after pets are more likely to end up like pets.com <laughs> let me just put it that way
1: <laughs> well, we, we we can't move this conversation along without pausing at 2007 2008 so what did your book look like then you, you were trading financials for a, a lot of your career right yeah so what, what were some of the highs and lows? Or with there just ever-increasing lows? Oh, that was tough. But
2: I will say we stayed fairly ahead of the curve. I'll relay one conversation. And this is where you never know where things happen. Is one day in 2007, I get in the elevator and the door opens a floor higher. In walks Thomas Petterfee.
1: Now, at this point, he sat very close to where I oh, let sat. Let me just explain to the audience, Steve, exactly who Thomas Petterfee is. He's one of the architects of the options market from back in the 70s he's the founder of this company and until a couple of years ago was the CEO and he's now the chairman of the board yes so for those of you and who, our boss
2: for those of you who are, for those of you who are actually listening to this and had and didn't know who he was that's thank you but you know the door opens and walks thomas and it's like you know he's not a small talk kind of guy so you know what's new and I I said you know I don't like what I'm reading today in the wall street journal and that is that Bear Stearns has some hedge funds that could have liabilities as high as $20 billion. And that's not a small number. No. And he said, how big is Bear Stearns? I said, probably about $20 billion. Mm. And he looks at me and goes, are you telling me that you think Bear Stearns is bankrupt? I said, I'm not going to go that far. But um, I think, yeah, there's a reasonable possibility that, yeah, it could be. Um, he responded with expletive deleted and basically said, more or less, don't be short puts in bank stocks
1: <laughs>
2: from here on out. Wow. And I made it my job not to be. It was, that was a very tough challenge because you really couldn't, you know, the, the, the flows were enormous. But right. um, I wouldn't say we handled it without ever hitting a pothole. That would be unrealistic and and overstating it. But I would say our positioning tended to be um, risk-averse during a very risk-averse period.
1: And so having weathered all of those storms, so I I started off deliberately talking about Timber Hill because it was the mainstay, it was the bread and butter of this company. When I joined 2007, I think 30% of the revenue of the company came from the brokerage side and 70% from the the options market-making side. And I know Thomas's vision for the company was to reverse that. And that's that's fairly much happened. So, so what is it that uh, that that we've done as a company, or that that Thomson Management has done, to make this company grow so effectively over the last couple of years?
2: Well, I think the original vision of Interactive Brokers was we had this trading operation, and wouldn't it be nice if we could feed this trading operation over time that outgrew the proprietary side. There's kind of a limit to how big a proprietary broker can be. You certainly can't be bigger than the marketplace. And there's once you get hit a certain level of concentration, it doesn't work because there's no one to trade with. And so, you know, I think the brokerage firm had fewer limits upon its growth than the prop side did. There also became a concern among customers that we were internalizing all kinds of things. And and that really wasn't the case. You know, we've been very committed to best execution for our customers. And I mean real best execution, not like, you know, sort of a fake best execution that is within the rules, but isn't really best execution. And ultimately, there was no better way to prove that than by saying, look, we have no conflicts with our proprietary trading. We became interactive brokers and the dealer went from being the parent became the child mm. is really what happened.
1: Mm-hmm. So in not. In that time frame we've gone from i don't know six seven hundred employees to more than two thousand these days i think and we've expanded massively in terms of different roles different departments and so on one of the really important departments nowadays is is education what's what's your role in the company these days and how does it fit into into educating the client um
2: you know my role has become and kind of became this way accidentally they were nice enough to let me start talking to to the press and writing guest articles and magazines and stuff of that nature, and that became a, a job in and of itself. And my feeling is, I try to put regular content on our website and via media appearances as well. Um, but the main the main focus is putting content on our website that hopefully teaches people how to think about the markets. Um, I, I'm less. Nuts and bolts than you are in terms of I'm not you know I'm not going to necessarily spend the day explaining why a vertical spread is better or worse than an outright. But I want to make people think about um, what they're seeing and why. You know what, why is the market doing what it is? Why is volatility up? Why is volatility down? Um, how is what the Fed's doing going to influence stock prices? Whether it's today, tomorrow, or, or over the coming year and that's my role in trying to educate people. You can't make money all the time. My feeling is first of all don't lose money. You know, I think a lot of trading is about avoiding losses as much as it is about maximizing gains because, you know, too many people I think swing for the fences. This is what scares me right now is I think a lot of customers, I mean, you look at how many customers we've gotten since March of 2020. Yeah. If they're new to the markets overall, these people have never seen a tightening cycle. They've never seen a market that doesn't go relentlessly higher. They've never seen a fed that or central world central banks that aren't like flooring it all the time. This is the first time that the fed's taken their foot they told you they're taking their foot off the accelerator. Somebody used the comment the other day, I wish I remember who it was, I wish I could quote her. Calm seas make lousy sailors.
1: Right.
2: And I th- I'd never heard that before. I thought it was brilliant. And that's yeah. why I wish I could yeah. give the quote because um, anybody who started investing, if they're doing well, God bless you. You can't assume this is the way it always works. It's an anomalous period. And extended even further, there's a whole generation of investors who came in the market, you know, aftermath of the global financial crisis. So that's 12 years ago already. Um, and they really haven't seen a market where, you know, a couple of times the Fed had a slight hiking cycle. The, the Fed had the taper taper tantrum. The central banks have been very reluctant to remove liquidity or or reduce liquidity. And that becomes, you know, if they're sort of sincere about reducing their balance sheet, sort of reduction of stimulus and actually some sort of um, reversal of stimulus. um, You know, this is a very uncharted period for a lot of people, which is why my big concern for 2022 is, that I think people are going to get rocked by volatility here and there. And that does, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Volatility creates opportunities. But the half-life of the buy the dip seems to be getting continually shorter. And I think that's not right. There's the concept of the Fed put. Um, I've said various times, I don't know where it struck. You can't assume it struck 2% below the market. Right. Yeah, And so... Mm-hmm.
1: So, Steve, we can find your articles uh, perennially on uh, tradersinsight.news, and uh, they are extremely well-read. You'll also find those uh, in Trader Workstation under Traders Insight News. Um, Have you got any favorite um, TV stories for us Um, off the top of your head? Yeah, my favorite one so
2: far was um, I was on Bloomberg one day, around this time of year, holiday season. And markets were acting poorly at at this point. Um, And, you know, they said, what's going on out there? And I said, it's the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip problem. And the hosts, she sort of looked at me like, huh? Meanwhile, we get through it and it ends. At which point she's like, what did you mean? At the same time, all the crew is high-fiving me because they knew that the reference was from Trading Places. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie, and you should, there's a lot to like about it. Um, cut to the chase. Eddie Murphy is being taught to trade. He's, he's a, a homeless man who is, who is suddenly thrust into basically my old job um, and is, you know, sort of running the trading at this big commodities brokerage firm um, and they're teaching him how to trade. And the price of whatever it is they're showing him is dropping, dropping, dropping. And the, the two old men who run the firm, the Duke brothers, know we should buy it. And he said, no, 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 don't buy it yet. There's people worried about their bonus. And I'm, gonna, I'm oversimplifying and they can't buy their kids the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. Give them another couple minutes for the panic to settle. Then you buy. And of course, this being the movies, he finds the absolute trading bottom and up it goes. But um, but that's the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip problem. So I would say that having used that on air one time, having left the left the host to leave her a little bit flummoxed and have the, the cameraman and the director, the producer give me high fives for using the reference, uh, that was probably my favorite TV moment.
1: Excellent. So going forward, we're going to be doing uh, more of these podcasts. What are some of the things you're going to want to talk about with the audience?
2: What I'm going to try to be doing is talking less on myself, because you know what? I write a lot and do the videos once a week. I'm going to try to bring in some of my friends and colleagues to talk about other things about the business, get other perspectives. You know, I'd like to think we've done a pretty good job about putting my perspective out there. Um, I think I think it would benefit our clients and our viewership or our listenership to get some, some fresh ideas. So I have some ideas in the works of who I want to bring in and who I want to have conversations with.
1: So Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist for Interactive Brokers, thank you very much for joining me today. And we look forward to meeting you in 2022. Sounds great, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. To the extent the material in this episode discussed general market activity, industry or sector trends or other broad-based economic or political conditions, makes reference to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, it should not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. You should seek professional financial advice before acting on any investment. Interactive Brokers is a member of FINRA and SIPPIC.